And I want to thank everybody for coming to class today. If you need a Bible, there's one on your table. Take that Bible. It's the same translation I'll be using. And the first thing you'll notice is the superscription over the psalm. And that is, that includes these words, a psalm, colon, or period, a song for the Sabbath day. So in this case, we see something. We see, number one, this psalm is a what? It's a song. That's good. It's a song. So it's something that's going to be sung. It's a song for, or a song for what? For the Sabbath. Now that means it's either going to be sung on the Sabbath, or it's a song about the Sabbath, or it's both. Right? So it's called a song of the Sabbath. Now, if the theme is the Sabbath, we need to know something about the Sabbath day. Uh, does anybody know where we have the instructions about the Sabbath? What's the first instruction about the Sabbath? Huh? Ten Commandments. God has given us the Ten Commandments. And He gave His people the Ten Commandments to guide them in their life choices. And to set His people off from the others who didn't live according to a certain code. Does anyone know what the Sabbath commandment is? Is it the first commandment, the fourth commandment, or the ninth commandment? Let me see if anybody knows that. Fourth commandment, that's good. Fourth commandment is the commandment to uh, six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. So the commandment, the Sabbath commandment is about taking one day a week off and resting. Who knows uh, the basis for this commandment? Is there anybody else who, who took a day off? So God took a day off. So God takes the day off. He works six days in creation. And then he takes a day off and he rests. So the Jews were told to devote one day a week uh, where they didn't work and they rested and they devoted their attention to God's goodness and worship. So that's what this is. This is a song for and about the Sabbath day. So let's look at the focus of this song. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And notice the Lord there is all caps. Right? That's God's covenant name. It's good to thank the God of the covenant. The God who has entered into a relationship with us and says He will bless us if we do certain things and punish us if we don't do certain things. So here's what it says. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And to sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Now let's break down these verses for a moment and let's see what we can make of that. First of all, notice the word good. Now good can mean simply right, mean right. It's right to give thanks to the Lord. Or it could speak of, uh, it's noble. It's uh, beneficial. It's profitable. See, that's very, it could mean any of those things. It's profitable to what? <laughs> now notice there are three activities listed. Each one begins with the word, each phrase begins with the word to. See, it's good to. And you see also, 
in the middle of verse 1, 2, and then beginning in verse 2, the word 2. So let's look at the three things, three activities listed. First of all, it's good to watch the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon. Is that, that's the first one listed there, right? Second, it's good to go shopping at North Park. And then third, for Pam's sake, it's good to eat at Alphine's. Those are the three, three things. So notice that the uh, three things <laughs> fall into three categories, okay? First of all, notice in verse 1, the category of praying. Second of all, the category of singing. And then in verse 2, the category of confessing. Okay? Now notice that the prayer has to do with thanks. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. That's prayer. Notice the singing has to do with praise. It's good to sing praise to your name. And then the third category deals with confession. It's good to proclaim or declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness in the evening. Now, notice your, the phrase, your loving kindness and your faithfulness. These are covenant words. This means that God has set down this agreement between himself and his people, and he has been faithful to that agreement. And we confess it. God never lets us down. And we confess his faithfulness to his covenant and his loving kindness, which uh, means his compassion toward us in keeping his covenant. Notice when we are to do these things in verse 2. First of all, at the beginning of each day. You see that? Your loving kindness when? In the morning. It's never too early to declare God's faithfulness and to give thanks to God and to praise Him. And then look, not only at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, and your faithfulness at night. It's never too late. On the Sabbath, now this is the thing for the Sabbath. Now we should be doing this every day, but look, if this is a song for the Sabbath, it's never too early on the Sabbath to praise the Lord, and it's never too late. Let's say you haven't done it. And let's say we would say, just for the sake of discussion, that we worship on Sunday, that would be our Sabbath. I know there's big theological issues there. But, you know, and you haven't praised the Lord yet, because it's not too late to do it now. When you put your head on your pillow, it's not too late. It's never too early to praise the Lord. It's not too late to praise the Lord. And it's good. It's beneficial. It benefits us physically. It's healthy to pray and thank God. You feel better. It helps us physically. It helps us psychologically to sing praises. See? In prayer, it benefits us physically. It benefits our health. In praise, singing praise, it benefits us psychologically. When you sing, you're releasing your emotions to the Lord. See? And in confession, we benefit spiritually because we confess and we're talking to the Lord and we're close to the Lord. So that's verse number one. So in verse number two, it's good to give thanks to the Lord, our covenant God, sing praises to your name. Notice how it changes from the Lord, third person, to your name, second person. It's very interesting that would happen right in the middle of a verse, isn't it? Not sure why that is. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Now, how are we to do it? Look at verse 3. On the instrument of ten strings. Notice the words on. On the lute. 
and on the harp with harmonious sounds. Describes a full range of instruments. Describes, you know, orchestration. Describes <coughs> music attending to the lyrics. Uh, which tells us that this is a psalm that is for the congregation. Because I can't praise the Lord on ten strings and a harp and the lute and all those different things. It takes a lot of people to do this. This is sort of a psalm for uh, the people when they gather together. So collectively, and when we have church in the morning, we have orchestration. Some denominations don't believe that songs should be accompanied by orchestration or instruments. I mean, it's a major doctrine for these churches. They have a real problem when you come to song. And so those denominations, you know what they usually do? They don't read the Old Testament. They say the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament, and they sort of put that in another era. And that's, you know, a very difficult thing to do. So now why are we to do this? So a variety of instruments. Why are we to do this? Look at verse 4. For you, Lord, have made me glad. That's why we do this. That's why we sing. That's why we thank. That's why we confess. Because you, Lord, have made me glad. Through what means? Through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. Now, God's works are His actions. And in this psalm, I think there are actions that uh, are done on our behalf, God, where God intervenes on our behalf, and He, he moves, and He does things, you know. Uh, notice, He says, you've made me glad in the past and in the present because of your works, I'm glad. And then look what He says at the end of verse 4. And in the future, look, Notice the verb there. I will, in the future, I shall triumph in your works. Hey, you've come through. You're, I've seen your handiwork. You've intervened in my life. You've acted on my behalf. You're a God who's not silent. You're a God who acts. And you've made me glad. And I know, know guess what else, Lord? And I know in the future, I'll triumph. Because you too are going to intervene in my life, in my, on my behalf. This is all God's doing. God's doing produces a glad heart, and the glad heart produces the prayer and the singing and the confession. Does that all make sense? So he immediately, just right at this point, after he says that, he just breaks into words. So look what he does in verse 5. He says, Oh Lord, how great are your works. And then he says this, Your thoughts are very deep. How great are your works? How great are they? Well, Enough where he can say, let there be light and there's light. That's how great they are. He can say, lift up your staff and the Red Sea opens. He can send manna down from heaven. Hey, you think he can take pain from a back? You think he can find a job? He's a God who does great things. How great are your works? And then he says, at the end of verse 5, and your thoughts are very deep. Uh, they're not haphazard. They're not off the cuff. Uh, God's plans are not hidden midst. They're very intricate. How deep are they? So deep that people who really aren't connected to God just can't get it. <laughs> it's amazing. Because look what it says in verse 6. 
A senseless man does not know. He doesn't know your works. He doesn't know about your works. He never reflects on the thoughts of God. That would wear him out to have to reflect on the thoughts of God. Uh, he's a surface person. Uh, the senseless person is a person that, as my wife said, used to say to my kids, no, she never said it to Aaron, and I would never say this in front of his children, that your grandmother said to your father, you weren't born, you don't have the sense. Oh, God gave you, and she never brought God into it, believe it or not. You don't have the sense that you were born with. And she would never say that to your dad, would she? No. I had to do that. I'm probably going to have to buy lunch, so I have to get something out of it. So anyway, a senseless person is not a person who doesn't have sense. It's a person who doesn't sense God's action in their lives or in their world. Uh... They, they live off of their instincts, uh, like animals. Animals don't think upon God. See, how deep are his thoughts? Well, the senseless man, it says in verse 6, does not know. He doesn't know those. Uh, they act as if life, these senseless people act as, as if life is just a series of random events. And that God is not responsible for this. Now, these are unreflective people. And... Uh, Interesting, I think most people fall into that category in the world. They really don't reflect on the thoughts of God or the works of God. They just go through life as if, you know, it's hitting this cause and effect and all this kind of stuff. They have no interest in spiritual things. Now, this doesn't mean that a senseless person is a stupid person. This doesn't mean they're unintelligent. Uh, this doesn't mean they can't succeed. It simply means they don't see God's hand in their success or in the things that they do. Verse 7 says, and it says at the end of verse 6, nor does a fool understand this. Look at that. Nor does a fool understand this. He doesn't understand. And who's a fool? The person who acts as if there's what? No God. They don't see God's hand in this. See? So that's what it's describing, a person who's senseless to the things of God. And then in verse 7 it says this. When the wicked spring up like grass. And now notice this. We have this senseless person being called wicked. Uh, most likely this is probably a Jew. This is probably a person who says that they're a child of God, but they, are, they don't think on God's things. They just sort of ended up just living on a flat plane. So looking to God's guidance and uh, God's hand in things. And he calls them wicked. The wicked spring up. Look what they do. Notice what? They spring up. How do they spring up? Like grass. Now, if you cut your grass last week or had your grass cut last week, guess what it's done? It's grown fast. And these senseless people, these wicked people, they grow. They grow in, in uh, financially. They grow intellectually. They grow in power, they grow in might, they grow in prestige and riches and so forth. And then in the middle of verse 14 it says, and when the workers of iniquity, look at this, flourish. See, these people are still successful, even though they don't retain God in their consciousness. They flourish. What does flourish mean? They thrive, that's what it means. 
flourish is way above normal. And there are a lot of people that have flourished that don't keep God in their consciousness. And then at the end of verse 7 it says, it is that, I read the middle verse and then the end of verse, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. Wow, that's a strange verse, isn't it? They flourish that, so that, in order that, they may be destroyed forever. That's the purpose of their flourishing. They flourish for the purpose of dying one day. What kind of thinking is that? That they are allowed to flourish that they may die. It's the same thinking that a farmer has who fattens the calf that it may be what? Slaughtered. <laughs> they flourish in order to be slaughtered. They, so they flourish, they live, they're successful, but it's all just a prelude to their death. And that's it. That's what the wicked people get for all their flourishing. That makes sense? Sort of interesting, isn't it? So now what we do is he gives us a contrast. And the first contrast is between these senseless people who flourish and then die, and they're gone, with God. Contrast between them and God. Look at verse 8. But you, Lord, are on high for how long? Forever. Forevermore. See? You are exalted. You flourish, if you want to use that word. You're, you're exalted. You're flourishing. And you're flourishing forever. They're here. They flourish. They die. But you, Lord, are forever. And then verse 9 says, For behold, your enemies, O Lord. See? Take a look at those enemies. For behold, your enemies shall what? Perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. They'll be scattered like the chaff. They'll be scattered like dust. Dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. And you go, and there goes the dust. And just scatters. That's their end. They perish, and their remains are scattered. This speaks of judgment. Judgment for those who do not retain God in their consciousness. Now look at contrast number two, found in verse 10. And this is a contrast between those senseless people and the psalmist who was a faithful believer in God. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. God is exalted forevermore, and guess what? He's also exalted, he says, my horn. Which uh, the word horn is symbolic, and it probably means... My authority, my power, you've exalted. And how have you exalted my power? You've exalted my power and my horn like a what? A wild ox. Some translations say unicorn. I like the word unicorn. <laughs> because it has a horn. <laughs> and this verse talks about a horn. And it's a horn that sticks straight up. <laughs> it's a singular horn. And it's always pointing upward. And he's just talking about the longevity of the authority and the, the power that God has given him. It's not extinguished. He doesn't perish like the others. And, uh, in the, and it's God's doing. By my horn, you have exalted, see? But my horn, you've exalted. This is God's doing. These others have flourished, but it was their doing, and they perished. But God flourishes those who are faithful to his covenant. For end of verse 10 says this. 
and I have been anointed with fresh oil. Huh? Notice it's an ongoing anointing. He was anointed yesterday, now he gets anointed again with fresh oil. Notice the blessings continue to come. It's an ongoing thing. It's not a time when the anointing runs out, in a sense, symbolically speaking, but the mercy is new every morning. It never fades. And so if the senseless ones are judged, this man is vindicated because God continues to bless him. There's no end to the blessing. He makes it very personal there. My horn. See that? You're going to see in verse 11. And my eye. Look at this. My eye has also seen my desire on my enemies. My eye has also seen my desire on my enemy. Now we discover that the enemies of God are also the enemies of the psalmist. We don't know who they are, but they're probably people that are trying to, you know, disrail this person, whoever it is. And he says, I've witnessed the fall of my enemies. Look at that. In other words, I see them perishing left and right. I've witnessed that. I've witnessed that you're faithful, that you judge. They have not entered the covenant, they're judged. I've entered the covenant, I'm blessed. So he says, I've witnessed, my eye has seen the desire of my enemies. And then the end of verse 11 he says, and my ear, my ears hear my desire of the wicked who rise up against me. He hears rumors. And if he doesn't witness their demise, he hears rumors that, hey, did you hear so-and-so is Bit the dust, and he's gone. And so we see the vindication of the righteous and the judgment upon the wicked. Okay, still with me? Okay, now what he does is going to show how God basically blesses the righteous. So let's finish out this thing. Verse 12, he says this. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree and shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now, notice the word flourish. The righteous shall flourish. Down in verse 7, it talks about the wicked flourishing. The wicked flourish like grass. And it's cut down the next week. They perish. But look in verse 12. The righteous shall flourish. How are they going to flourish? Like a palm tree. They shall grow how? Like a piece of grass? No, like a cedar in Lebanon. So what he's talking about, both flourish. One flourishes temporarily, that's the wicked. The other, the righteous, flourishes permanently. That's what he's saying here. Palm trees and cedar trees are evergreen trees. Evergreen means what? Evergreen, that's right. So, uh, and they don't, don't usually die. So it speaks of longevity. It speaks of strength. It speaks of endurance, if you will. Okay. Now look at verse 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. If you are planted near God, then you will flourish permanently because God protects you and God blesses you. See? If you're planted in the house of the Lord, you shall flourish in the courts of God. So God is your protector. Don't worry about perishing. Now, when I read this, I was thinking, well, it sounds almost like Psalm 1. So let me just read this part to you. Don't turn there, but just look, read it. 
you know, he talks about blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly and all this kind of stuff. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now watch this. The righteous person shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in season. We're going to see that. Now a tree that's planted by the water is a permanent, is a permanent fixture. Always being fed. It's always flourishing. And that's what he's talking about in Psalm 92. He goes on to say, but the ungodly are not, not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not be standing in the day of judgment. They're going to stand up righteous in the day of judgment. They're going to cower. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the ungodly shall perish. See, this is basically a repeat of Psalm 1, only in this psalmist's contemporary setting. So, go back to Psalm 92, and you look at verse 14, it says this. The righteous shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Some translations say they shall be fat and flourishing. Look at the word flourishing. They're flourishing when? In what? Old age. You see that? They're flourishing in old age. It's just, they're not cut off. Uh, you know, there are trees that produce fruit for years and years and decades. And there's trees out in California. How old are they? No one knows how old they are. Yeah. So we have these. But he's not talking about trees. He's talking about people. <laughs> he's just using a simile here. So even in our old age, we are flourishing. But it's not so with the wicked. They're like the chaff. The wind blows. So I was thinking about old age. And I thought I should have dealt with it in a previous psalm where David said, or the writer, whoever it was, said, for God's people, you live to be three score and seven. Remember that? Seven. And I asked Bob about actuary tables and all that that week. But by strength, you might live to be 80. So I said to Lynn this week, I wonder what the average lifespan was in 1000 AD, when some of these psalms were written. So, I went to that source of authority, Wikipedia. <laughs> Actually, I, I finally went to a legitimate actuary table. The average age in, 30, in 1000 BC was 38 years. But what does, what does David say? For you, it's 70, and by reason of strength, 80. I mean, that's nearly double. While others are perishing, look what he says. You're going to be flourishing. Oh, wow. Now, I don't know what it is for the day, but we can trust the Lord that even up to our last breath, that we're flourishing and we're producing fruit and we're praising the Lord. What end? Look at verse 15. We'll be flourishing the old age to this end, to declare that the Lord is upright. He keeps his word. He keeps his covenant throughout our entire lifetime. And then he makes this final proclamation. He is my rock. And there's no 
I mean no unrighteousness in him. So, God is the foundation upon which the psalmist lives his life and depends. And he knows that he can depend on God because God keeps his word and he can be trusted. And we see here the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant. So we have two kinds of people. Both flourish. Even the wicked flourish. One, they fade away and die. The others flourish into old age. And I think about this. I said, is there any example of this in the scripture? And I thought about Judas Iscariot. Chosen by Jesus. Flourishing. Handles the treasury. Perishes just like that. Short lived. And then I think of the Apostle John. <laughs> lives to be 100 years old. <laughs> writing scripture to 100 years old. And here's two flourishing. One flourishes for a time. The other flourishes for not only a time until he dies, but for time and eternity because he's in the scripture. So here we have an example right there in the New Testament of this psalm coming true. Next week we'll look at Psalm 93, which is only five verses. And Greg Patterson said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Uh, for your word, we thank you that we can take heart that you are indeed our rock. We can look at those around us who seem to flourish, wonder what's going on, but we know that, that you will exalt us, you will give us power, you'll give us authority, you'll give us fruit in our life that will last. It won't only last for our lifetime, but beyond our lifetime and the generations ahead. We never know, Lord, if we confess you before men now, what kind of result that will have in someone's life, and who they'll touch for the next generation if you go on for thousands of years, simply because we were faithful to your covenant. We thank you, we praised you, and we confessed you. So thank you for this opportunity to be in your word in Christ's name. Amen.